Friends, I want to ask you to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians is found on page 972 of that pew Bible that you have right in front of you if you don't have your own copy. And as you turn, let me remind you of a meeting that changed the course of history. On November 28, 1943, United States President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and the Soviet Union's General Secretary Joseph Stalin met together in what would become known as the Tehran Conference. You see, they all had a common problem. The problem was that someone was trying to steal their freedom. Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Reich were waging war against the Russians, and the Russians were staggering. They were waging war against Europe, and many nations had already surrendered. They were waging war against the British, and they were near collapse. But this meeting changed everything. Freedom was at stake, and it was unavoidable for these leaders to have to work together and try to push back the one that was seeking to enslave them. What would have happened if they didn't meet? What would have happened if they simply said, nope, we're all going to do it our own way and try to defend our own turf? Well, mercifully... We don't know, because the Allies were formed, and the outcome became clear. The Allies won the war against the Germans and the Japanese, and a defining moment of history was made. And that meeting was key toward the outcome. As you turn to Galatians chapter 2, and as we turn our attention there, we see some clear similarities. There was a meeting that changed the course of human history. An enemy to the gospel sought to enslave Christians. And so the stakes were very, very high. And some freedom fighters ardently defended the true gospel because the true gospel leads to true freedom. And so with that, Look at Galatians chapter 2, and let me remind you that the Apostle Paul is writing to this, these churches in Galatia, promoting the one true gospel in the midst of some who were promoting an alternative or false gospel. And this part of chapter 2 is a bit of a biography, and I want you to hang with me because it's a little bit hard to understand as you read it aloud, because Paul is the master of interrupting himself. So try to hang with me, and I'll explain it as we go. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet
Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine and the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul heads to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus to have a meeting with the other apostles. Now Paul took multiple trips to Jerusalem over the course, over the course of uh, his ministry. We reckon that this is probably the second one of those trips. We see it in Acts chapter 11, a trip when he went to go specifically to give a gift for the poor, to the poor churches, the poor Jewish Christian churches that were there. And he's eager to have this meeting because as it says in verse 2, he says, I went up before because of a, because of a revelation that, and set before them the gospel which I proclaim among the Gentiles. I set before them the gospel in order to make sure that I was not running in vain. He wanted to meet with Peter and James and John, the disciples of Jesus, the other super apostles they might be called, the pillars, Paul calls them, the one who are influential. He wanted to meet with them to make sure that the gospel was clear. The most important thing. He wasn't concerned that his version of the gospel was wrong. He heard it from Jesus himself. He would stake his entire life on this gospel. But he was worried that the message might be undermined by those who were sharing a different gospel in Jerusalem. And so the stakes were very high. And since some of the disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, were Jews... <laughs> who lived in Jerusalem. And there was this sect of people called Judaizers who lived in Jerusalem. He was most concerned if the disciples themselves had been poisoned by this false gospel. He didn't want all of his work to be in vain. Because there was a lot at stake here. I mean, more than you might originally think. They were talking about belief that leads to life or leads to death. They were talking about the very core of the work of the Savior himself. They were talking about the core of the Christian faith. And it was hanging in the balance. 
And if this meeting had taken a different direction, history as we know would have drastically changed. On one side, you have Paul, who preached the gospel that God saves people, any people, no matter what gender you are, no matter what tribe you come from, no matter what the color of your skin is, no matter what you've done, that God saves people by his grace, through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. On the other side, you had some Judaizers, some Jews, who said that God saves people, and to be part of the family of God, that you needed to become first Jewish, and adopt the law, and then Christian, by adopting Jesus. And these two views were very different from each other. And Paul wanted to know where the apostles stood. His description that he gives of those preaching that second gospel, that false gospel, is anything but kind. Look with me. He calls them spies and false brothers. They're spies because they're sneaky. They steal and the results of their tradecraft is destructive. He calls them false brothers because they call themselves Christian. And they might even look like they're Christians. But their faith is not genuine because they don't believe in the one true gospel. And the influence of these spies is spreading in Jerusalem. They're planting seeds of Jewish legalism. And if they had it their way, every single one of you would be a Jew first and a Christian second. There'd be no such thing as Gentile Christians. And so he went to his proverbial Tehran conference <laughs> to meet his version of Churchill and Stalin. And he brought with him a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian to make his point a visual the story in Galatians 2 doesn't tell us about all the ins and outs of the conversation. Wouldn't have been great to hear. Was it long? Was it short? We don't really know. Was it contentious or was it not? We don't really know. But one thing we know is that coming out of that conversation, there was two points of victory. Two points of victory, at least in the eyes of Paul and the apostles themselves. Victory number one is that they did not add or take away anything from the gospel. Look with me at verse 6. It seems like it's almost a passing verse in the middle of Paul's interruption. He says, those who seem influential added nothing to me. The other apostles didn't take the bait. Spies were among them, but they held their ground with the true gospel. False gospels always add something or always take away something from the notion that God saves by his grace through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Peter, James, and John didn't add anything to that. Whew. What a relief. But to help us understand the significance of why Paul is so concerned about this, how this idea that we should become Jewish would enslave us, I mean, after all, verse 4 tells us that those spies that he's talking about, those false brothers, spied out our freedom so that they might bring us into slavery. 
Slave traders are the worst kind of people in the world. And that's what Paul is accusing these people of. And so we have to try to understand how does the Old Testament law enslave us that he would level such a sharp accusation? Remember, there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament for Jewish people. And those laws were to be followed with strict adherence. And if a law was broken, there was a variety of ways that you could be cleansed from your sin, either by through ritual purification or through sacrifice. But 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, gives us a way to understand the purpose of the law in light of the coming of Jesus. And so this is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It's on the screen behind me. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. That first sentence in verse 9 is really important, that the law is not laid down for the just, but it's laid down for the lawless and the disobedience. In summary, the law was meant to highlight our sin and to show us our need for a Savior. It was not meant for those who had already trusted the Savior. It was not meant for those who had already been justified by God through the work of Jesus. It's not meant for those who had been declared righteous because they were washed with the blood of the Savior. It was meant for those who didn't yet know Him. It was meant so that they would see and know and feel the holiness of God and their need for the forgiveness that He gives. And so here are a couple of practical implications of why Paul says that this law is not for Christians. The first one is, if the law highlights our sin... But in Christ, our sin is forgiven and removed. Therefore, the purpose of the law is null and void. And so I want, I want you to try to understand this, and we're going to do just a little bit of heavy lifting in Romans 6 and Romans 7, because it shows us in Romans 6 and Romans 7 some really important core truths of the gospel, and that's namely this, that when you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, there is a sense in which you become united to him, spiritually speaking, that Jesus unites himself to you and you to him, and he never, ever, ever, ever lets you go. Which is a wonderful comfort. And in this union with Jesus, Romans 6 tells us that we're united with him, not just in person or in spirit, but in particularly his death and his burial and his resurrection. This has great implications for you. And so Romans 6.10 talks about this change in your status for sin and this change in your status before God that comes through Jesus. It says, For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, all of you, if you have your faith in Jesus... Consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're dead to the overwhelming status of sin that is impressed upon you, and you're dead to the overwhelming power of sin that is upon you. Now, you'll still struggle with sin. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But sin no longer controls you. You're no longer a slave to it. What is a slave? When we think of a slave, we think, of course, of the American slave trade in our history. A slave is someone who has to obey their master. A slave is someone who is compelled to do something, even if they don't want to do it. To be enslaved is one of the worst types of existences that we have. I wonder if you've ever felt like a slave to your sinful desires. Some of you who are Christians can remember back to before you knew Christ, and how you couldn't help but do the things that were sinful. They drove you. They seemed to control you. They enslaved you. I think of one of my friends who was rather well-to-do, but was a rampant materialist. He just couldn't wait to buy the next boat <laughs> or the next car or the next fun toy. But when he got it, it didn't fill the void. You've heard that story probably a hundred times, and yet we all seem to fall into it at some time or another. And so he would buy another, a nicer, a newer model, but it didn't fully scratch the itch. And so weeks and months and years went by and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars went out the door. He made a lot of money and he spent a lot of money thinking that the next thing would be the thing that would release him. That would give him joy. But he was still a slave. Until he met Jesus. I think of another friend who sought to find her meaning through relationships. She was a type of woman who was rarely seen without a man for more than a very short amount of time. And so she spent years of her life, teenage years, 20s, 30s, 40s, into her 50s, relationship after relationship after relationship. Four marriages, multiple affairs. And still she sought more. But none of it seemed to satisfy she was enslaved. We can think of any number of our sinful propensities that enslave us. Maybe it's our temper. Maybe it's our pride. Maybe it's our attitude. Maybe some of you even feel that way right now. You think about your life and when you lay down on the pillow at night and you review the activities of the day or of the week, you think to yourself, I can't escape my own desires. They don't fulfill you. But you keep striving, and there's no end in sight. You're a slave. 
you need to know that the forgiveness of Jesus frees you. Your old self dies with Christ. And your new self is free to be all that God has you to be. We're enslaved in sin until we're united with Jesus. That is the status of everybody. But because Jesus carries with him our sin and he dies with it on the cross, when we have faith in him, we die to that sinful enslavement as well. Dead people can't be slaves. And then he raises us to new life, spiritually. Life with God. And Romans 7 shows us how this relates specifically to the law. And so with that backdrop of slavery and freedom and sinfulness and alive with God, Paul integrates this whole idea about the law and the purpose of the law. And he says this, he says, Likewise, brothers, just like death, burial, resurrection, slavery, and then freedom, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. The message of Romans 6 and 7 is this, if we are slaves to sin, we'll be enslaved under the law. But if you're free from sin, because you put your faith in Jesus, you're also free from the law because of Jesus. This is one of the wonderful aspects of the gospel. If we follow the law, the implication is really one of two things. I mean, it's impossible to fulfill the law completely. And so if you want to be a law abider, if you want to be the most moral of moral people by following all 600 30-something Old Testament laws, here's the result. Either you live with a tremendous amount of guilt because you can never actually do it. It's failure upon failure upon failure. A guilt that is ever before us. A guilt that we're reminded of daily. A guilt that points to the fact that we are, in fact, slaves. Or, if you wish to follow the law then you will be made a grand hypocrite. Because you will look good on the outside most of the time. But on the inside, your sin is raging against you. But in Christ, simply by grace, you are set free. This freedom is what Paul was fighting for. The gospel releases us from slavery and it gives us our freedom. The gospel releases us from slavery and it gives us our freedom. And so that's victory number one that they didn't add to the gospel. They deemed Jesus' work on the cross to be sufficient. You didn't need to become a Jew. But what would that actually look like on the ground? And that leads to victory number two. 
Victory number two is that they accepted Paul and Barnabas and Titus. And we see that in a couple of ways. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us they didn't force Titus to abide by the law and to be circumcised. A Gentile Christian claiming the banner of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the Gentile believer in the Jewish Messiah who walks into the very center of Judaism in Jerusalem to meet with these apostles and they accepted him on the basis of his faith as one of their own because of the gospel, because of Jesus. What a great victory. Verses 7 to 9 point to the fact that these apostles, James, Peter, and John, Cephas is just another name for Peter, James, Peter, and John, recognized that Paul had received the same grace of God that was given to them. And Peter's ministry was to the Jews, and Paul's was to the Gentiles. And so they extended, he and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. They accepted him, and they accepted his message. Now think about what could have happened if the apostles had two different gospels. Church historians reckon that this meeting set history on the path. If they had two different Gospels, we'd be looking at a very different world. Was Christianity a sect of Judaism? Or was it the grand work of God in a whole new covenant? That's what this meeting decided. Think about what could have happened if the Gospel had been added to and we would go back to being slaves again. The importance of this Jerusalem summit just shows that God does not allow us to go back into slavery. He wants you to be free from the overpowering weight and controlling nature of sin. And that leads us to a number of gospel realities. And let me just close by giving you five very quickly great gospel truths about this grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus. It means, number one, that there can be unity among Christians. That these different Christians, apostles, came together in unity around one gospel. It means that there can be unity for Christians all over the world and through seasons of history. It means that we can have different styles, but still one gospel. Traditional style, contemporary style, classical style, rock and roll style, formal style, casual style, somewhere in between style, your preference style, probably not your preference style, international style, all kinds of style, but as long as there's one gospel, we can have unity. It means that we can have different emphasis points of emphasis, but one gospel, that the gospel has a core and many variegated points of emphasis in its application, and that Christians can partner together along different lines of emphasis, but if there is one gospel that we're centered on, we can have great unity. It means that we can have a different audience, but one gospel. 
that one audience can be in the United States, and one can be in Nepal, and one can be in the Philippines, and one can be in Uganda, one can be in the city, and one can be in the suburbs, and one can be in the country, one can be to Gentiles, and one can be to Jews. But if there's one gospel that binds us together, then we are one. Fellowship in Christ is enough for fellowship with one another. We have unity with other Christians insofar as we share the same gospel that God saves us by His grace through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Nothing more, nothing less. But if there's a different gospel, there's little unity at all. Just by way of exhortation, I'm going to say the thing that we know to be true but nobody likes to say. <laughs> Just because you know somebody who calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean that they believe the same gospel. Or just because a church might call itself a Christian church doesn't mean necessarily that they are teaching the same gospel. Paul calls the Judaizers false brothers. They called themselves brothers, but they were false. And so we stand firm with clarity on this foundation because it is what creates the unity for us. Gospel reality number two. It's important that Titus was there because this shows us the multiracial faith of the gospel. Community, states, countries, seasons of history, different skin colors, different ethnic backgrounds become one in Jesus. It's one of the great, great applications of the gospel. And we're going to explore that actually in greater detail and what that means in the coming weeks. Number three, the gospel reality is that this means that you're no longer slaves, but you can enjoy true freedom to be who God has you to be. That you are not bound by rules and regulations and conformity. Now, of course, we put the caveat in that God has a moral law and he wants us to pursue faithfulness to him and flee from sin at every possible corner because that will destroy us. And there's grave practical consequences to our sin. And because we have a holy and just and loving God, we want to pursue Him with every possible ounce of our being. But in matters of preference and in matters of conscience, we have great freedom that you don't have to look like a certain way to be a Christian. That you don't have to act like one of the elders of your church. That you don't have to dress like your pastor thank God, that you can express you in wonderful aspects of gospel freedom because it releases us from slavery and gives us freedom. Gospel implication number four, that there is no first class and second class citizens in God's family. Sometimes I hear as a pastor, oh, you're a first class citizen and I'm not. Sometimes people might look at Andreas and Jessica who are here today with World Help and they say, wow, these, this young couple 
is giving a lot. I mean, they put graduate school on hold for a year right in the middle of it, 10 months going all around the country with all these children for a really good cause. They must be first-class Christians. That's something that first-class Christians do. I'm not a first-class Christian, so I could never do that. Some of you have been in this church for 50 years. And for the last 20, you've been sitting in the same seat. You know it's true. You can laugh at it. And some of you have been here for five minutes. And you're not sure if you want to be here anymore. But there's no first-class or second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There's no reserved parking spots at Old North Church. There's no high bestowing honor for certain types of service or long-standing nature. Because under this banner of freedom, all of us were slaves who God rescued to new life. And gospel reality number five, perhaps my favorite, is that if you've put your faith in Jesus, and that's such an important caveat, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then God will not love you any more or any less than he does right now. Think about that for a minute. Last week, uh, I had the opportunity to speak to a number of people after the sermon who had great questions and insights and a number that were just simply overwhelmed by the reality that God was pleased to show Christ to them. That of all the people in the world, God chose to save them. How do we respond to such a reality? And one woman in our congregation with tears streaming down her face in gratitude to God said, if, that, if God was pleased to save me, well, what could I possibly do to have him love me even more, because I want that. I want God to love me as much as he can possibly love me. And the answer is simple. He can't love you more, and he will not love you less than he does at this very moment in Jesus. What a tremendous thought. And that begs the natural question. What about my ongoing struggle with sin? I mean, I screwed up a lot of times this week. Do you mean to say that God doesn't love me less when I sin? If my kids play soccer, they want to try to do well most of the time. Okay, half the time. But the times that they do. And they succeed. If they succeed, their father is proud of them. But I don't love them anymore because they succeeded. I love them the exact same that I loved them before the game. And if they try hard in the game and they don't succeed, they play poorly, or if they don't even try hard at all, and it's just kind of like a weird hour, their father doesn't love them any less than I did before the game. And so it is with you and with God. When he gives you Christ, 
and you receive him and enjoy his grace and his forgiveness and you become his child, he cannot love you anymore and he will not love you any less. And that is displayed in a number of ways, including in the freedom that he gives you. The gospel releases us from slavery and it gives us our freedom. In 1824, Peru won its freedom from Spain. And soon after, Simon Bolivar, was, who was the general who led the liberating forces, called a convention for the purpose of drafting a constitution for the new country of Peru. And after the convention, a delegation came to him and asked him if he would become the first president of this new nation. And he declined the invitation saying that he thought another person was more worthy than he was. But the people wanted to try to do something to express their great appreciation for the general. And so they offered him a gift of one million pesos, which was a very large fortune in those days. Bolivar accepted the gift and then immediately asked, how many slaves are there in Peru? He was told there were about 3,000. And how much does a slave sell for, he asked. About 350 pesos for an able-bodied man, he was told. Then, said Bolivar, I will add whatever is necessary to this million pesos you have given me, and I will buy all of the slaves in Peru, all of them, and set them free. It makes no sense to free a nation unless all of its citizens enjoy freedom as well. It's a horrible thing to be a slave, to see freedom, to catch a glimpse of it, maybe a momentary taste of it, but to never actually be free. But in Jesus, the gospel sets us free from our slavery and gives us our freedom, freedom to enjoy God and love him forever, freedom to be all that God has for you to be, freedom to experience life to the full, Jesus says, and eternity at its best. And so I commend to you, Jesus, the great freedom fighter and the liberator of our soul. Let's pray together. Father, it is with careful consideration that we think about the nature of slavery. It's with careful consideration that we desire to experience all that you have for us. And so we rejoice in Christ, recognizing his kindness and his goodness, recognizing the overwhelming measure of your grace that was sufficient for us. And we pray all the more that we would enjoy this freedom that you give. In Jesus' name.